The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demon, demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons, Babielzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Olivia. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I add my welcome to Joe's. It is a privilege to be worshiping with you and to open God's word with you this morning. Before we break from the book of Luke for the Advent season, we come to this miracle that Jesus performs on this mute man that we just heard read. And Luke records this story on the heels of the incident with Mary and Martha, if you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, as we saw the discussion of the Lord's Prayer. Now, at first glance, there may seem little to no connection with these three stories, but Daryl Bach, as I was reading this past week, I think is helpful in showing that upon further study, we learn the answer to these two questions. Why should one sit at the feet of Jesus, and why should one adopt the attitude reflected in Jesus' distinctive prayer that is revealed in this event that we have in these verses? As he goes on to say, Bach says the only logical deduction from Jesus' miracle is that God is working through Jesus, who in turn is bringing the kingdom victory and judgment. So as we'll see this morning, this event brings to bear the source of Jesus' authority and his power. And so with that as the backdrop and the context, let's pray and let's ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Pray with me, please. Father, we pray along with the psalmist, let my soul be at rest, for the Lord has been good to me. Father, that is indeed the case, for we have much to be thankful for this morning. 
For you are good and you do good to your people. And forgive us for alleging anything to the contrary. But Lord, we have gathered this morning with various circumstances in our lives seeking rest. And we often try to find that rest and other things in this world, but yet we gather this morning right now to open your word. And we ask that you would come powerfully by your spirit and give us rest as we rest in the promises that we will look at this morning in your gospel. Father, may we see Jesus and him alone this morning, high and lifted up, that we might look upon him and behold him and we might be changed as we do. We pray this for your glory and our good, in Christ's name, amen. Well, leaves on the ground, a mother in labor, scaffolding all around this building. What do all these things have in common? They're signs that reveal that something is happening. Leaves on the ground reveal that it's fall and winter weather is fast approaching. And a mother in labor is a sign that a new baby is coming into this world. And scaffolding all around this building is a sign that renovation has begun. Similarly, this miracle that Jesus performs here on this mute man is a sign. And we'll learn that through this miracle that Jesus, his matchless power signals the arrival of God's kingdom. And the arrival of God's kingdom means at least three things for us this morning. The arrival of his kingdom means it leaves no room for neutrality. But secondly, the arrival of his kingdom requires more than just cleaning up our lives. And then finally, the arrival of God's kingdom means it brings true blessing to those who hear and obey God's word. Now Luke tells us this man was possessed by a demon and he was mute. Now imagine not being able to speak, especially in a culture where most couldn't even read or write. It was your only way to communicate. And this man likely for decades, if not his whole life, has had to rely on facial expressions and hand gestures in order to communicate with those around him. Just think about how frustrating and hopeless life must have felt like for him because of this demonic spirit who had kept his tongue from working all these many years. And then Jesus comes on the scene. There's a crowd that's gathered and Jesus casts this demon out of this man and immediately his tongue is loosed and he's able to speak. Now imagine the the joy and the excitement this man must have felt with this newfound freedom to be able to communicate. I'm sure he began talking 90 miles a minute to make up for lost time. And most of the crowd knew that this man was mute and they probably presumed he was gonna be mute the rest of his life. But when they heard him speak, they knew they had witnessed a miracle. But Luke tells us that many in the crowd, including the scribes and the Pharisees, they accused Jesus of casting out this demon by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, Beelzebul is the ancient name of a a false pagan god. We read about it in 2 Kings. But over time, that name became this bitter and scornful word that the Jews adopted and used to describe Satan. And at the heart of this accusation against Jesus is that he's in cahoots with Satan. They're crediting the work that has been done by God here to be done by the power of evil. But now there's also a group, another group in this crowd, while not accusing Jesus of being in cahoots with Satan, they're not so impressed by this miracle that they've just witnessed. 
They want something more to convince them that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he is the son of God. And so they test him by demanding that Jesus perform another greater sign as if making someone who was mute begin to talk for the first time was not powerful enough. Now Jesus could have easily written these people off and not even responded to their accusations. But notice how Jesus responds to both of these groups, those who were unconvinced and even those who were blaspheming him. Luke tells us in verse 17 that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their hearts. And he engages them though. Engages them compassionately, but yet boldly to set straight where his power and authority is derived. And Jesus, knowing the eternal judgment that was at stake for every person in this crowd, responds to their accusations of exercising this demon by the power of Satan by showing how illogical and how foolish their line of reasoning really is. Look at what he says. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. In other words, Jesus says, if Satan is casting out his own demons and setting people free, he's working against himself by undoing his work of destruction, which is his mode of operation. But then Jesus goes on further and exposes their hypocrisy. See, exorcisms were not uncommon during that day. And Jesus turns the question back on the crowd. And he says, okay, if, if what I've done is by the power of Satan, then by whose power do your sons exercise demons? Now, whether it was their Jewish contemporaries or whether it was the, uh, Jesus' disciples themselves, when they performed exorcisms, the people, most of them believe was done by the power of God. And so Jesus' point is, is, if I perform exorcisms by Satan, then so do you. But in fact, I perform this by the power of my father. In verse 20, Jesus offers this explanation as to what this miracle really reveals because it's pointing to something much greater than the sign itself. Notice he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that phrase, the finger of God, is a reference back to Exodus, Exodus chapter eight with Moses when the, the magicians acknowledged that Pharaoh, what Pharaoh's heart couldn't see because it was so hardened, they saw the power of God at work through Moses in these signs. It was not something that was manufactured. It wasn't magic. And likewise, the scribes and the Pharisees here, their hearts were so hardened that they couldn't see and acknowledge God's power that was being displayed through the Son, through Jesus. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God has arrived in himself and in his work, it is a statement of compassion, a statement of mercy. Because it's this kingdom that the people have been waiting for for generation after generation after generation. They've longed for the day when the incorruptible kingdom and the king who is all powerful and gracious would arrive on the scene. And Jesus is here. The casting out of demons is the fruit, it's the evidence that the kingdom of God has come. The work of Jesus is revealing the unraveling, the defeat of Satan and his kingdom. A new regime has taken over. And then Jesus offers this mini parable to explain the destruction of Satan's kingdom. 
He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he's trusted and divides his spoil. Now, the strong man in this parable is Satan. And picture him having his palace full of weapons and possessions and it's all safe behind his palace walls. And Jesus is depicting the sober picture and reality of Satan and his stronghold on the unregenerate, on unrepented sinners. And Jesus is making very clear that the sinner's heart must be rescued by a power and authority stronger than Satan in order to free the sinner. And there's only one who is the stronger man, and that is Jesus. And this is the one who has come to rescue and give victory to his people. This is what John says in 1 John 3. He says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then Jesus goes on the offensive here, is invading Satan's palace to overthrow him. He takes what the devil has falsely claimed for his own and Jesus comes and reclaims what is rightfully his. It's a depiction of this spiritual war, this battle that is taking place between good and evil. But it's also this beautiful picture of redemption as the holy and righteous one dominates by his power over evil and defeating sin and Satan and everything that has kept his people's hearts in bondage. And then after revealing that the kingdom of God has finally arrived, Jesus offers this warning to the crowd. And it's a warning to you and I this morning as well. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, would any of us say that we are against Jesus? I doubt it. But I think if we investigate a little more our own hearts, we might see that we're more like those in the crowd than we like to admit. See, we, like those in the crowd, we often, even if subconsciously, we doubt and we want to wager and ask God, are you really good? Are you really present with me? Do you really love me? Well, if so, then you will provide this job for me. You'll allow me to get in this relationship that I'm longing for. You will heal what is broken in my body. You'll give me this good grade on this test. Or you'll give me more money to come out of this financial hardship that I'm enduring. But Jesus knows, just like with those in the crowd, there is no sign great enough to convince a hardened heart that Jesus is who he says he is. But then there's also the threat of attempting to remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. But as Jesus makes very clear, there is no room for neutrality. Truth has come in time and in space and every one of us here has to deal with that truth. Will we accept it and embrace it or will we reject it? As C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, he says, you must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. It is impossible to remain neutral to Jesus Christ. 
Either we're joined with him or we are his enemy. And to, be, to ignore him or to be indifferent to him is also to take our stand as one of his enemies. There is no middle ground. You know, although I professed faith in Christ in high school, I can remember the summer before my uh, freshman year in college, I had just grown tired of obeying all the right rules and doing what I thought I was supposed to do. And so I began for a season to follow the ways of the world. But I had a, a high school friend who very lovingly and boldly confronted me. and said, Chad, you're trying to straddle the fence, but you have to choose whom you're gonna follow. You're either gonna follow the ways of the world or you're gonna actually follow Jesus, the one you profess faith in. And it was not long after that time that I began to read the Gospel of John and the Spirit began to, to open my eyes to the reality of the work that Christ had done for me that I didn't have to perform, I didn't have to try to achieve in order to earn God's love and affection. Did you catch what Jesus doesn't say here? He doesn't say, you're either for me or you're against me. He says you're either with me or against me. And I think maybe for some of us, we might be for Jesus, meaning that we're not against what he stands for, but we're not really keen on giving him our life and our authority over our lives. We're not actually united to him. We don't love the things that he loves. See, to be with Jesus implies that we're not attempting to straddle the fence as it were or to profess Christ when it's convenient for us or when it actually benefits us. No, being united to Christ means his vision becomes our vision and we begin to grow to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. See, in our, our Reformed tradition, I think we can have this tendency to be for Jesus theologically. Like we have all the right answers and we can even defend those answers. And we may even enjoy discussing faith and all the difficulties and challenges that may come with Christianity. But perhaps our love for discussing the big theological questions and the mysteries of the faith is really an attempt to put a wall so that we don't have to deal with the personal implications of actually following Jesus. So we can often intellectualize Jesus in an attempt to be neutral because we don't want to deal with the implications of having to call him Lord and give him authority over our lives. Or maybe we are simply apathetic, indifferent to Jesus. Either way, he says we're opposed to him if we take this line of reasoning. How do you interact with Jesus? Is there a level of skepticism, fear, hesitation in the way that you approach him? Have we ever stopped to notice what our interactions with Jesus are really driven and motivated by? Is it to get to know him more intimately and to grow in deeper faith in him? Or is it to simply get what he can offer us? Are we pouring our souls to him as we seek him and trust him to be who he says he is? If neutrality is not an option, we have to search our hearts and to see where we might actually be opposing Jesus. Whether it's the greed in our own hearts that we're not willing to confess and repent of or whether it is maliciously gossiping and making accusations falsely about another brother 
or sister, or whether it's how we use our bodies, our money, our time, or our entertainment choices. Are we entrusting every area of our lives, our marriage, our our singleness, our vocation, our future, under the authority of Christ because we trust and believe that he is who he says he is? Now, this doesn't mean that we're gonna do this perfectly. We're still gonna sin because sin still remains in us. But the evidence, the fruit of the fact that we are with Jesus, not merely for Jesus, is that our sin becomes growingly more appalling and distasteful and bitter to us. And we turn away from it back to Christ. When we evaluate by God's word and our personal interaction with Jesus, does our lives testify that we're with him in how we speak and how we act and the way we think? There's only two options that Jesus gives here. You're either with him or you're against him. And Christ's matchless power has defeated Satan in the power of sin. And he invites us to submit our lives before him. And the reality is that each one of us is going to face the Lord Jesus, either right at death or when he comes again, whichever comes first. And as C.S. Lewis warns very boldly, he says, on that day, that will not be a time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realize it or not. We are either in the kingdom of sin and death or the kingdom of God and we've been set free by the power of the stronger man. Now for those of us who trusted Christ, the security that we have to know that we are with him is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that has been deposited to us that testifies that we're his son or his daughter. If there are any here this morning who have not surrendered to Christ by faith, may that day be today to know that there is only one of two options. You are for him or against him. Jesus' matchless power signals the arrival of God's kingdom, which also requires more than just cleaning up our lives. In verses 24 through 26, Jesus tells another parable, testifying that even though an evil spirit may leave a man, it doesn't mean that the man is beyond the danger of evil. And Jesus depicts this restless exercise demon seeking some place or someone to inhabit. And then finding no one or nowhere, and so he returns back to his original victim, which he calls my house. And without the evil spirit, the man's able to clean up things a little bit, get things in order to kind of be the best version of himself that he can be. But without something else to take the evil spirit's place, there's this vacancy. And so the evil spirit not only returns to this original victim, but he brings seven of his buddies with him, even more evil than himself, and they take up permanent residence. And Jesus' point is that this man, without the evil spirit, may be physically alive, but he's spiritually empty and thus susceptible to all kinds of evil. Just getting rid of the evil isn't enough because it leaves this vacuum, this void, and that will be filled by something. And so when we try to reform our lives or try to do better, we're missing the reality that our eternal soul is either filled with evil or with the spirit of God. Jesus is showing that if we don't entrust ourselves to him so that his spirit takes residence in our hearts, then we open ourselves to all kinds of evil that will ultimately lead to destruction and death. 
As Thomas Chalmers, the Puritan, wrote, he said, even the strongest resolve is not enough to dislodge an affection by leaving a void. See, the root power of sin and evil is only severed and overcome by a superior power, a more compelling joy that is only found in Jesus. Because otherwise, all we will do is replace one sin with another sin. If we come to worship each week and we hear the truths of Scripture preached, but I wonder if some of us have reduced Christianity down to a manageable set of external moral principles and behaviors so that when we can follow those things, it actually proves our commitment to God. Kind of like I was attempting to do back in high school. We want all the right things and we want to put forth all the right behaviors and check off all the right boxes, but we really just don't want a crucified Savior who can actually deliver us from the bondage of our sin. See, the Pharisees in the crowd, they look clean, they look good on the outside, but they continually rejected Christ and remained in darkness. They valued their polished external appearance over the reality of seeing the filth in their own hearts so that they might turn to the one who could actually cleanse them by his power. See, no amount of determination or good intentions on our part can produce this lasting change that we all long for in our lives. The gospel acknowledged that if our life were a house, it would be filthy and dilapidated and an undesirable place. But the only possible way for that house to be truly cleansed is by placing Christ at the center, the one who has the power to purify and restore. But make no mistake, Jesus doesn't want to come into our lives to simply be our maid to clean up a few places that we actually allow him access to. No, he's coming in to be Lord, to bring restoration and renewal. And just like it's been this past week in my office, loud and messy and chaotic because it's under construction, our lives are gonna be messy. It's gonna be painful. It's gonna be chaotic, but he's working something beautiful, something that in the end we couldn't even imagine. And after claiming us and uniting himself to us, when evil does come knocking at our door and all of its forms of temptation and evil, it'll find that another resides there, the spirit of the living God, the one who provides all the protection that we need against sin and temptation. Are you simply trying to clean up and tidy up a few things, a few bad habits? Or will you recognize you need the power of the Holy Spirit to do a work that you can never do on your own. Lastly, and very briefly, Jesus' matchless power signals the arrival of God's kingdom, which brings true blessing to those who hear and obey. In verse 27, 28, we find that after Jesus says these things, there's a woman in the crowd and she speaks up and she says, bless your mama's heart for having you. That's the Southern translation, but to that effect, And Jesus responds to her and he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now there are a couple of things to note here in this exchange with this woman and Jesus. First is that this woman is a brave woman. She speaks up in this mixed crowd in a time in this male dominated culture, which would not have been looked highly upon. 
But I have to think that she was so overjoyed and excited with what she has seen with her eyes and what she's heard with her ears, she couldn't contain herself and the risk was worth it. Not to mention that she's aligning herself with Jesus, whom many in the crowd were opposed to. But her remark is an expression of gratitude for the ministry of Christ. We see here once again that God uses the things that the world calls foolish and that appear weak to shame the wise. He chooses this weak person, so to speak, by the world's estimation to shame the strong. And this woman, just like Mary, who sat boldly at the feet of Jesus in mixed company, this woman has no standing or social status in this culture. And yet, she gets it. She sees that Jesus is the son of God, that the kingdom has come in him. Where these elite Pharisees and scribes missed it. Not seeing that God's kingdom had come in the person and work of Christ. But the other reality to note here is that Jesus is not rebuking this woman in any way. Jesus isn't denying the blessedness of his mother. But Mary's blessedness by her own admission, her own confession is that God has looked upon her favorably. And Mary heard the things of God and she submitted in trust and obedience to what she heard. And so Jesus is revealing to those in the crowd and to us this morning that what Mary experienced, that kind of blessing is available to all of us. How do you know if you're with Jesus, united to him? You hear and you put into action what you hear. See, faith-filled hearing and obedience go together. You can't have one without the other. Because if we're unable to hear, we will not truly obey. And we listen and we obey, but not to earn anything. It took Jesus coming in flesh to destroy sin, Satan, and death so that he can take up residence in our lives and bring us a new heart and his spirit. And see, our eyes and our ears have been opened and even the faith that we exhibit and put forth is a gift alone by God. And if transformation has taken place in your life, it's not because of your obedience or not even because your enthusiasm for God. It is solely by the grace of the Lord Jesus, the stronger man who has come and defeated what we could not defeat so that we could be freed in him and actually by his power that indwells our hearts, walk in obedience to how he has called us to live. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson tells of a physician who was a medical missionary in Thailand. And the physician sent him a picture of a man And in the picture, this man was grinning, just smiling from ear to ear. But the man had no arms because this physician had to amputate this man's arms, both of them, because of leprosy that infected his body. And the missionary, through seeing this man on multiple occasions, uh, he was able to share the gospel with him, able to share about the person and work of Jesus. And one day, this man came back to see the physician for a checkup. And this is what he told the physician. He said, I'm so thankful for my leprosy because without my leprosy, I never would have met Jesus and experienced this kind of joy in my life. Let me ask you, does the good news of the gospel fill your soul to overflowing with joy? 
Or has it become stale, old? Do our lives reflect gratitude, thankfulness for Christ's work in conquering sin and death for us at the cross? See, just like this mute man, we once could speak of the things of God because we were in active rebellion and sin against our creator. But by grace, our eyes and our ears have been opened and our mouths have been unstopped so that now we can speak of his truth. The question is, will we proclaim with our lives, along with the apostle Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the midst of our rebellion and our sin, even in the midst of our good intentions to try to clean up our act, you saw through that and you did the unthinkable, coming and doing what had to be done, undoing our sin by taking it upon yourself at the cross through your son. And Father, we are indebted. Would we be willing to lay down our doing, thinking that we could ever get your attention or earn your affection and love? And may we rest in what Christ has done. And Lord, we thank you that you, while we still wait, have entrusted to us your spirit so that we might live by faith and walk in obedience, that it might be a testimony to a broken and fallen and lost world to see that there is a savior. There is one who has come, the stronger man, to defeat our enemies so that we can live in fullness to the Lord Jesus. Father, would you boldly allow us to proclaim with great joy the news that has been declared over us and what we've experienced in our lives and your goodness to us that Jesus Christ reigns and we are either with him or against him. Father, if you would do this and we would see men, women, and children in this community and the mountain and all around the world come to know you, we will return thanks to our Savior. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, a great Savior for sinners like us. Amen.